Sea Stories. Lives touched by the sea. You might hear in the background now that the engines of the all-weather lifeboat are starting up um, because the lifeboat is going back out to its moorings. It's quite, they're, they're quite powerful engines. We've got twin engines and we've got a fuel capacity which will give us a range for about 250 miles and that's running at about 25, 26 knots, which is fairly fast for a lifeboat to be running. So the crew are just casting off the lines here now and uh, they'll be moving back out to, to the mooring, which is just uh, about 20 yards away. This is Sea Stories, Lives Touched by the Sea, a radio documentary series for East Coast FM. Hello and welcome to Sea Stories, Lives Touched by the Sea. Today I'm at the annual open day here in Dunleary Lifeboat Station. Later I'm meeting with Mark McGibney, the youngest ever coxswain of a lifeboat, and finding out more about his role and what he encounters when he goes out on a shout. Well, my name is Stephen Wynn. I'm the Lifeboat Operations Manager at the RNLI station here in Dunleary. Well, today is uh, our annual open day uh, where we invite members of the public to come and have a look at the boats, meet the crew. We talk to them about sea safety. But the main, it's, the main reason is really to give an opportunity for people who, would, who wouldn't otherwise be able to get aboard a lifeboat and look around and see how everything works and have a better understanding as, as to what actually we do. I have the, the operational control of both lifeboats here because we have two lifeboats here at Dunleary Lifeboat Station. My primary job is to, when I get a call from the Coast Guard or the guards or whoever, is to make sure that these lifeboats launch very, very quickly indeed. So all our systems are geared up to uh, get the uh, lifeboats to sea very, very quickly. So, for instance, the all-weather lifeboat here beside me, from the time I get a call that somebody is in trouble, let's say you're in trouble, I could fairly much guarantee to have that boat underway, leaving the moorings, in about nine to ten minutes. Now, to do that, the volunteers, I have to page the volunteers through my phone. The volunteers have to leave their place of work, get down here, get changed, get out of the boat, start up the boat and leave. So they do very well to get away in about nine to ten minutes. That was Stephen Wynne, Operations Manager of the RNLI here in Dunleary. And we'll be hearing more from Stephen later in the programme. I'm sitting now with Mark McGibney, Sailing Manager of the Royal Irish Yacht Club and coxswain of the Nearly Lifeboat. Mark, tell me more about your background and how you started sailing and, and how you got involved in the RNLI. When I was working in the Dunleary Motor Yacht Club, um, one of the members was uh, the second coxswain at the time. And he said, well, would you be interested in coming over? There was an open day and about 30 of us turned up to go and try the yeah. ILB, the inshore lifeboat. So we were all brought for spins and asked whether it would be, would you be interested? Because it's a big commitment and they don't want people just to, you know, do a few months or and then walk it's away. It's a big investment in training, it's a big investment in There is more now than there was then. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're looking ahead going, we're going to spend time training these guys in, we want to get a few years out of them. So I think out of the 30 odd people that we have on that open day, mm. I'm the only one left. Um, some stayed for a year, some, some walked away immediately and said it wasn't for me. Some stayed for a few years and there was a difference, it was a very big range of age. So some of the older guys have gone through it and retired now. The training that they, they give us, like they will turn anybody um, from any walk of life into a lifeboat man. It, it'll take training, it'll take money, it'll take a few years, but I've seen it done. Um, and it's all part of like, they, they cannot 
in this day and age be sending people out on the water that aren't fully trained and are going to be able to, number one, look after themselves before trying to rescue somebody else. I live locally, work locally, so it's kind of perfect candidates to have. That's what we look for when we're enrolling guys now. You want to be working and living. The ideal would be working and living within five minutes of the station. All the exercising you do, like I would see the lifeboat out with the helicopter a lot, even you know the winter powering across the bay and all that. There's a lot of training. We go out every Monday night at half six every Monday. There's 24 active crew members, and they have um, they have a competency-based training in the Ornolai. Um, so you go through a procedure of hitting your targets and learning all the different tasks, and it's it's very very detailed. Uh, from rope work all the way up to the navigation skills. So you you work your way up and it probably take you about two years to get through your COBT. They allow three years. They reckon three years. Probably if you pushed it and you were down a lot, you'd get it on two. So three years to do your COBT. I, I was out there a few weeks ago, and there was a uh, there was two divers were missing. I was on this on the VHF, yeah. and they and I was very impressed because they gave the position where they were lost from, mm-hmm. right? With a lifeboat, with the knowledge you had locally and the tide the way it was, went straight to where they were because they had no way of finding them easy because they're dark in the water and they were in dry suits or whatever, right? Yeah. Or they were wherever they were well covered. But I watched the whole thing. I was out there and yet the lifeboat went over here and went right and found them. Yeah. And it ended properly, right? But it was a case of knowing the area and and instantly doing the right thing rather than searching around like mad, you know. Well, funny enough, it's actually it's it's, it's probably phrased bad. It's called sad. Search area determination. How you do it in the pattern, like a pa- is it? Yeah. Well, the search area determination is where do you think they're going to be? Yeah. So it's just a case of last known position, what the tide is doing, what the wind is doing. People and vessels drift at different rates yeah. because of their windage. So a person in the water, like a diver, have won't have the windage and yeah. have the tide. A person in a little inflatable dinghy that they yeah. bought in a, a shop, a chandlery shop, let's yeah. say, would disappear over the horizon yeah. and would have little effect on the tide because yeah. it's sitting on top. Yeah. So with divers, it's really just the tide. So where do they go? How long are they missing? One hour of tide is spring tide at the Muglins. It could be two and a half knots That's of tide exactly if you're in the third hour. So all the coxswains and all the navigators are constantly exercising this plan. You're listening to Sea Stories, Lives Touched by the Sea, a radio documentary series for East Coast FM. I don't know if people understand or realise what it can be like and the difference between a nice sunny day in Dublin Bay and, and times when you have to go out when it's not a nice sunny day. Well, Dublin Bay can be nasty enough. The east coast of Ireland is not protected very well for north-easterly or easterly yeah. breezes. Um, you get big seas, you get the banks out there, the Kish Bank and the, uh, and the Burford Bank. The yeah. places that you avoid. I don't see it as much in the lifeboat capacity or role because... I, there's times I wouldn't even think about going out into the bay yeah. in any sort of boat. Yeah. But when you're on the lifeboat, you, that you doesn't even cross. Well, that exactly. doesn't even cross your mind yeah. because of the confidence we have in the boat. Like you can get in that thing, close the doors, get in your seat, and put your seatbelt yeah. on, roll the thing That's 360. Back, yeah. It'll pop back up. You're not going to get wet. You know, it's just full confidence in the boat that you know if we're going out here, we're safe. What we do out there 
to try and rescue somebody else at times we'd obviously be putting ourselves at risk but that is a risk that we have to, a have volunteered to do b that we train to do we know the risks and you just do an assessment of what you're going to do have a chat about it work out the best way of doing this and then go and do it the only risk is opening the door and going on the deck and doing the job Talk to me about some of the hairy things you've done out on, on, I mean, have you had some of the exercise or some of the actual rescues you've done out uh, from here, from the station here? Well, there was one story that always sticks, it's most of the lads on the station know it's it's in the way, it's slightly humorous in a way, but this poor chap on a cargo ship coming down the Irish Sea, one of the the hatches, the deck hatches came down on his hand and unfortunately took the top of one of his fingers off. So we were called out and it was horrific conditions. So we went out, and there was no way we were going to get him off safely uh, down the sheer side of this ship. That yeah. He was going to have to come down a rope ladder yeah. with one hand bandaged up, missing a finger. So we brought him in, and he followed us in inside the kish bank, brought him in as close as we could to get a bit of shelter. And then we decided to attempt to get him off. Uh, Ken Robinson was the coxswain at the time in the old Waveney-class lifeboat. So we went in. The captain hadn't got great English, but uh, we were able to get him to turn to give us a bit of a lee. We went in to pick him up. The guy comes down the ladder. They had a rope around him for safety purposes. And we got in, grabbed him, got him on the deck, and you lie down as quick as you can mm. on the deck because yeah, the, just, the yeah. boat rolls. Yeah. So grabbed him, lay down, the coxswain powers away from the side of the, of the ship. And uh, the lads are on the deck holding the rope, which is still tied around the man's waist. And we're like, let go of the rope. And they're like, no, give it back. No, give us the rope. They, they weren't like, no, we want the rope. So out knife, thank God, cut rope, and away we go. So we're heading back in. And we literally just left the side of the ship and over the radio. Hey, Captain, Captain Lifeboat, Captain Lifeboat, you must come back, you must come back. And we're like, oh no, what, what's going on? She says, you, yes, you forgot the finger. They had the finger in a, in a separate bag. So around we come again. Ken says this, I'm right, here's the bag coming down. There must have put a weight in it or something, that's fine. Have the knife ready this time because they're not going to give us the rope. Yeah. So grab the bag with the finger in it, cut it and away we go. So that was fine. So we went in, grabbed the bag, cut brought it around to the back, gave it to the doctor because he wanted to make sure that they had... Put an ice or something Yeah, they had it correct. If you put the ice directly onto it, it kills the nerve ends. It has to be in a bag bag. or wrapped in cloth and then the ice. I went to go and give the bag to the doctor, so he opened it up to check the finger and there was a bottle of whiskey in it. So we had to go back around again the third time (laughs) for the finger. So eventually we got the finger, that's the one I gave to the doc and he checked it and said, that's fine. And he gave it to me and says, right, yeah, that's all fine. Tied it back up and he says, he gave it back to me and says, right, go outside and just hold that up in the air. So I spent from the Burford Bank back to Dunleary, standing at the back of the lifeboat, holding this finger up in the air, just uh, trying to keep it cool. Holding on. Annoying the coxswain immensely, because I kept walking up behind him and tapping him on the back 11 times. <laughs> I've got 11 <laughs> fingers now, coxswain. <laughs> um, you need a sense of humour, don't you? Oh, uh, you have to. Yeah. Uh, you have to. It, like, you need to, after ex- shouts and exercises, you need to just, you know, go yeah. have a bit of a laugh. Even, even the ones that aren't great, you know, the ones that stick in your mind that don't. This is Sea Stories, Lives Touched by the Sea. There's one that sticks in my head, and it'll probably never go away, was um, we were sent down to Bray Head. There was a sighting or a report of possible somebody coming off the cliff or falling off the cliff. So we got down to Brayhead, there was, the Coasties were down, the Coast Guard were there, they, they knew where the, the, the body was, and I had washed into this little cavern or cave on the beach in Brayhead, and it was just, it was too awkward to, A, to get in there to get the, the casualty, and B, to get him out of the area, back up the cliffs, it was easy to take him out by sea. Yeah, yeah. So we went in using our 
our XP boat, which is a small little inflatable we carry on the big lifeboat, pumped that up. And two of us went in and you could see the casualty in the cave. And it was low, it was low enough, there was only maybe three and a half, four foot of headroom. So we had to go in on our hands and knees and literally kind of over the casualty. It was wasn't very, it was like a coffin nearly. Yeah. Um, so we had to pick up the casualty by the shoulders and hips and lift back a foot down, yeah. lift back a foot down. And um, the casualty had come off the top of the cliff, landed badly on their head. So it wasn't a very pretty sight. Mm. Um, but it was, being, it was just that hole being so close to the person. Yeah. Normally what we do, you, as soon as you can, put the person into an ambulance bag and zip them up. It's yeah. just, it just it distances you from the tragedy. Exactly, yeah. But being so I have to be so close to them, yeah, yeah, you're nearly see, hugging yeah. them to try and yeah. get them out. And uh, we, so we got them out or the casualty out and we had the ambulance bag and uh, there was no rigor rigor mortis or anything like that yeah. this was still a fresh incident yeah. and it was only when well, I kind of knew it when mm. we were doing it just from the, the waist and stuff but it was a 12 year old boy yeah. and that when we turned him over that just hit me yeah. and it was just absolutely horrific um, it'll always stick in my head it was yeah. just a horrible thing to do especially now I'm older at the time I didn't have children yeah, you know there was that kind yeah. of stuff I do now yeah. but made it worse after that and it taught me a lesson it was um, the child actually jumped off the cliff yeah. and the reason he did is because he didn't want to go home and show mummy and daddy his end of year exam results so he was afraid he had the report the report card was found up on the top of the cliff with a school bag and that's you know the thought that a child would actually do that because of something like that yeah. um, especially with my background of not doing very well in my leaving cert. Yeah. Um, add that into it, it, it's just always taught me a lesson. Yeah, my kids, I'll always bring forward about the amount of pressure I will put on my kids to perform in certain things. It, 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 that'll never go away. You know, it was a lesson learned in life for me. Um, it was a horrific thing to have to do. And that's the whole spectrum of working with the RNA life. It can be humorous, it can be uh, trivial, some of the rescues, and it can be that serious. It's that sort of commitment you make when you join the RNLI. Yeah, well, you never know when the, when the pager goes off, you, you just don't know what it's going to be. That was Mark McGibney, the coxswain of Dunleary lifeboat. Last year, the 45 lifeboat stations dotted around the country rescued 1,400 people. The lifeboat here in Dunleary launched 56 times. Dunleary does have the unfortunate distinction of having suffered the worst loss of life in one single RNLI shout or call-out. And that happened on Christmas Eve 1895. Operations Manager Stephen Wynne picks up the story. That happened in December 1895, Christmas Eve in fact. A Finnish sailing ship called the Palm that was driven past the mouth of the harbour in an easterly gale and went to ground up near Booterstown. And the lifeboat was launched and in those days there were no engines, it was pulling lifeboat you know, with the oars and sailing. And 15 men on board that lifeboat went out into the stormy seas here off the harbour mouth it was blowing quite hard, it was, a, it was a whole gale. And on the way down to the casualty, to, to get the crew off the casualty, the, the casualty vessel, um, the boat capsized, and the, the boats in those days don't right themselves like the one, ones we have nowadays. And the entire 15 crew uh, lost their lives, which had a, nobody can really imagine the impact it had on a local community like Dunleary, especially at Christmas time. The breadwinners, you know, fathers, brothers, uh, sons, just taken out of the community just like that. Another lifeboat was launched, because we had two here at that time, they weren't able to get alongside and they, 
they came ashore up near Black Rock Harbour, uh, none the worse. The people on board the ship had to stay there overnight and on Christmas Day um, they were subsequently picked up by an Irish Lights tender when the weather had abated and without any loss of life. And it was rather ironic that uh, everybody was saved, of course we were grateful for that. And of course they had the terrible sight of seeing the, the lifeboat men that had drowned on the way out to save them actually floating past their own vessel and there was nothing that they could do to help them or to save them. And, and so it was that that Christmas was a particularly bleak one and we remember them every Christmas Eve here in Dunleary by going out to lay a wreath at sea. We have a little uh, ecumenical service and remember all those who have been lost at sea around the coast over the last year, but especially those 15 men in 1895. And there's a plaque to their memory on the lifeboat house beside the East Pier to those men that have been lost and they're named on a very large rock, a memorial stone, which is just behind the uh, lifeboat station here up on what we call the top road on Queen's Road. That was Stephen Wynne, the operations manager of the RNLI here in Dunleary. Well, I'm standing at the memorial and reading the inscription. And it's a large piece of granite with the engraved with the names of 15 brave lifeboat men who in 1895, on Christmas Eve, rowed out to a stricken vessel to save the crew. But they never returned. The memorial marks their bravery and their loss in 1895. And as I'm standing here, I'm looking at a very high-tech modern lifeboat here opposite the lifeboat station in Erie, and it's tugging and rolling in the wind at its mooring. And I'm thinking about the rowing boat that the, that the lifeboat men in 1895 set out from Dunleary on this spot. And I suppose, as Mark explained to us, the modern lifeboat is very well suited for its task. Everyone is strapped in their seats. It has the best of equipment. It is uh, self-writing. That means if, it, if it's rolled by the sea, it comes back up immediately. And contrast that with the rowing boat and just pulling on the oars and the waves crashing over you. Standing here, I think of their wives and children and other family members who waited on the shore looked out to see the rough sea, the white tops in Dunleary, the white tops of Dublin Bay, and the ship foundering out there. They never came back, and they're remembered here today in this memorial. So the next time you pass along here, spare a thought for them and read the names. I'm John Murphy. Join me next time on Sea Stories. Next time on Sea Stories. In speaking in this series to lots of people who have accomplished longer voyages, they talk about being at sea at night. They talk about being been away from land, been away from the madness of emails and phones, right? H- how's your experience been about that? I think it's great. I think that's what that's what we're, I suppose, designed to do, to be self-sufficient in a way. But we've become more reliant on modern communications and staying in contact. When you're out of contact, you're lo- longer in contact with people, you've no longer got news coming in. You've also no longer got stress coming in as well. A lot of the outside stress comes from the media being in contact all the time, having to catch the news on the hour, reading emails, checking the papers on your iPhone or whatever, all that's gone. Sea Stories, Lives Touched by the Sea, was presented by John Murphy and produced by Pat Hannan. Find out more information about Sea Stories. Go to facebook.com forward slash Sea Stories Ireland or follow Sea Stories on Twitter at Sea Stories IRL. It was a 21st Century Vox production for East Coast FM and was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. With funding from the Television Licence Fee.